Amen. Well, hey, good morning. Way to be here on this spring break Sunday. A little chill in the air, but sunny. Uh, just a great day to, to worship God. Today's a special Sunday. It's a Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, officially. Uh, what the church around the world calls Palm Sunday. That, uh, that beginning of Jesus on those final days leading to the cross, ultimately leading to the resurrection that we'll celebrate next Sunday with Easter Sunday, but began with that march into Jerusalem with the crowds waving palm branches. That's why the palm branches, we didn't just forget to clean the auditorium uh, this, uh, this morning, but uh, the palm branches on the floor, that reminder, that waving of the flags, so, so to speak, here comes the king, Hosanna, save us. But they didn't know what kind of king we needed. Now today we're going to actually look at a different passage of uh, Scripture. We're going to continue on in the book of Mark, but I think that uh, we will see how it ties in to, to Palm Sunday and points us towards Easter. You're going to definitely want a Bible this morning. We're going to be in a, in a pretty uh, uh, big chunk of Scripture that we're going to be looking at starting in Mark chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, go on and open up to Mark 7. If you need a Bible, just slip up a hand. Lots of people walk around here, and they'll slip a Bible to you so that you can follow along with us. Mark chapter 7. And also, as Brandon said, thank you to all the guys that did work so hard yesterday. But especially, I want to say thank you to Zach. Uh, Zach Fry, uh, give him a round of applause. Led the efforts. If you enjoy that beach volleyball court, uh, sacrificially uh, gave of his time and, and, uh, and the uh, uh, the work to plan that. So thank you, Zach. I really appreciate that, man. I know you didn't want me to do that, but I did it anyway. But before we dig into the scriptures, I got a very important question that I need to ask you. And I actually, I want you to process this and, uh, and share it with the person that you, if you came with somebody or just somebody that's sitting around you maybe. What is the best sandwich that you've ever eaten? Not for real. I, I mean, what is the best sandwich you've ever had? Answer that, you know, talk amongst yourselves. Uh, you know, think about it. I know there may be uh, some debate going on in your mind. There's some different options, you know, answer you know, tell each other. What is that best sandwich you ever ate? Yeah, you're figuring it out? I would have said that, uh, you know, we went to, there's this deli up in, um, in New York, and we had the opportunity to go on a mission trip up there, and we stopped and ate, and I honestly cannot remember the name of it. Uh, Oh, it's on the Carnegie, maybe, something like that. Anyway, the sandwiches are like this tall. So, and I thought, like, this is the most amazing sandwich I've ever eaten in my life. The problem is, when a sandwich is this big, how do you eat a sandwich this big? So I've now decided that my favorite sandwich is currently the pastrami at the row, just in case anyone is curious what my favorite sandwich is. That is the answer. But the reason I'm asking that question is because as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, and I hope opened this book up in ways that you haven't seen before, is that Mark uses sandwiches to make some points. In other words, the, the sandwiching of stories. He'll start a story, and then he'll insert a story, and then he'll conclude the story. A sandwich. A scripture sandwich. But he does it over and over again because he wants us to see. There's like this interruption. Pay attention. Now, the amazing thing is that the very center of Mark's gospel is a giant sandwich. And it happens to be a sandwich about some loaves and some fish. A fish sandwich, if you will. 
So Mark, we've looked at last week, Benji did a phenomenal job uh, and appreciate him uh, uh, opening up the scripture for us last week, looking at this famous story of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6. Jesus meets the needs of the people there on that mountainside, using the disciples, shocking the disciples as they give the little they have, and he multiplies it out. Five loaves and two fish that feed a multitude of 5,000 men plus the women and children. But then Mark includes another feeding, of the, uh, another feeding a, a miraculous uh, a feeding of the masses. If you go to Mark chapter 8, actually, we're going to work our way backwards. I'm going to give you the sandwich first, and then we're going to look at the meat. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Does this start to sound familiar? And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them, some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? You would think... That the disciples, having experienced and actually been used by Jesus to turn five loaves and two fish into a meal for 5,000 plus, that, they, that this wouldn't even be a question. They would just be like, hey, Jesus, we found some bread. Do your thing. But they're asking again, how do you expect us to do this? How do you expect us to do this? And we'll see why their doubts actually flow in here when they've experienced such a miracle before. How can you feed these people with the bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he follows this pattern of giving thanks for what he has, breaking what he has, giving it to his disciples, who then set it before the people, and they set it before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them, and they ate and they were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces, left over seven baskets full. Now, it's an interesting story. Partly because Mark, as we've looked at, at the, his gospel, is such a fast-moving account of Jesus' life. It's the shortest gospel. Mark doesn't spare any words. He's like immediately, and then Jesus, and then immediately, and Jesus, and immediately. I mean, he is moving fast, and every word counts. So why in the world would Mark choose to repeat a miracle? He's already turned bread and fish into a meal for the masses. Obviously, he's amazing. And not even that, I was thinking about this, the miracle itself is actually less impressive than the first time he did it. The first time, he took five loaves and two fish and turned it into a meal for 5,000 people. Here, he has to use seven loaves for a meal for less people. Now, that's kind of like debating the, uh, the extravagance of a miracle by being like, well, I mean, it wasn't quite the blind guy. He just, you know, grew a limb back. Yeah, I mean, like, it's still an amazing miracle. But if you think about it, it's less of a miracle than the first time he did it. So why in the world would Mark choose to repeat his words with a familiar story that he's already told? Well, in the language of our real estate friends, location, location, location. 
It is all about where this miracle is, not just what Jesus did. See, on the first time he told this miracle, or told the story, or Jesus did uh, this amazing feeding of the masses, he was on the primarily Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. So the crowds would have been the Jewish people, the people of God, longing for a Messiah, longing for a king, the same crowd that would gather and wave their palm branches, Hosanna, save us. Here comes the Messiah, the one that's going to overthrow the Roman oppressors, the one that's going to set up a new government where we'll be in charge, the one that's going to make things right and give us back the land. This is our Jewish Messiah who is bringing bread for his people because that's what good emperors do. But the second miracle is actually on the other side of the lake. And that side of the lake isn't Jewish. In fact, it is painfully pagan. The Decapolis, the area of the ten cities. And in this Gentile, cursed place, this desolate place, his disciples refer to it as, where there is no hope for these people, Jesus does the same miracle. And the thing is, as you read the story, it seems really important to Jesus that they get, it, what, he, they get what he's doing. In fact, over and over again, he'll say things like, do you not get it yet? Have you not seen what I'm doing here? And then on the boat, they start complaining about bread, which is, again, hilarious and gives me so much hope as a clumsy disciple follower of Jesus when I listen to these guys who have watched Jesus feed 5,000 with a few loaves, feed 4,000 with, with plenty left over, and they still are arguing about how they're going to get lunch on the boat ride home. And so Jesus stops them, and he goes, wait a second, think about this. Pay attention to what I'm doing here. The first time, how many loaves of bread was it? Five. And how many baskets did you have left over? Twelve. And the second time, how many loaves of bread were there? Seven. And how many baskets did I have left over? Seven. Now, they still don't get it. But what is the significance? There's something Jesus is doing here. Now, the commentators are pretty much agreed on the significance of the numbers. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. But remember, this is a sandwich. And in the middle of the sandwich is the meat. It's not just two random stories. I mean, Mark is stacking them against each other. And if you begin to doubt that Mark is being super intentional about a sandwich, I, I want you to do this because I want you to just see this. And, and also, part of my point is, um, or what I want to do, is less about you just hearing what I have to say and more about us together learning how to dig into the Scriptures for ourselves to hear what God has to say. But... Go to Mark chapter 6, verse 14. And, uh, and just if you're with somebody uh, that's with you uh, or just somebody, uh, people around you, one of y'all, just, just together, just read it. Read 14 through 16 um, out loud there together. Just kind of then read the passage for yourselves. 
Okay, so 6, 14 through 16. Now flip over. You'll have gone through the feeding of the 5,000 to the feeding of the 4,000. Then at the very end of the feeding of the 4,000, now read 8, 27 to 29. Do I get someone to, to read that part? 827 to 29. Does that sound familiar? And what's the point of those both of those places? Six. Jesus said, or uh, King Herod and, uh, is trying to figure out who this Jesus is. Some say John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Some say it's Elijah. Or he's a prophet. Eight, Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Some say Elijah, and others still the prophet. But then what does Jesus add at the end of these two mirror passages? That all-important question. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Now, the interesting thing about this, uh, this sandwich in the middle of Mark is that this sandwich changes everything. From this point up till now, Jesus is going around proclaiming the kingdom of God, announcing the kingdom of God, and demonstrating, displaying the kingdom of God with the miracles that he does and the ways that he teaches with authority. But from this passage, his message shifts. And for the first time, he says things like this. Listen, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. And he's got to be killed. But he'll rise again three days later. Three different times at three different places. He will say, the Son of Man must be betrayed. He will be killed, but he will rise again. Up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, it is all about announcing the kingdom. From this point in the Gospel of Mark, it is all about what he has to do for the kingdom to come. It's all pointing to the cross from here. So what is in the middle of this sandwich? Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. In other words, they were unwashed. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that they had not had water on them. It means that they weren't done in the proper way. I, I wanted to bring, and maybe I regret that I didn't. I have a, a, a printout of the uh, the the Jewish under, understanding of what it meant to ceremonially wash your hands, but it was such a long paragraph. I felt like it would waste too much time. But it involves how you make your hand into a fist, the number of times that you have to wash it one way, and you can't have the water come onto your fist this way because that's unclean water in the first time, and you can't leave unclean water in your hand, so then you have to wash it again with your hands pointed that way so that the unclean water then comes off of your hand and doesn't taint the hands that are now... It's ridiculous. So they're looking at the disciples. They're saying, why are your disciples not doing the proper hand washing that's making them unclean? For the Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless their hands are washed properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Just make a side note here is that um, Mark is writing to a predominantly Greek audience, and so they wouldn't necessarily have all been familiar 
with the Jewish customs. That's why he spends a lot of time telling them, hey, this is the way it was. Matthew, on the other hand, which has a lot of similar stories, is just from a different angle because Matthew's writing from a predominantly Jewish audience. Just file that away as you're reading these. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? I mean, they're really concerned about this hand-washing business. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the teaching of men. What Jesus is saying to these scribes and these Pharisees is that you have made your relationship with God about the rules that you follow and the regulations that you keep. And that it is more important to you that you uphold and keep the traditions of man, of the elders, and the religious authorities than what God himself said. Now Jesus later, when he talks about that, you've left the commandments. He'll be asked later, what is the most important commandment? So what is on Jesus' mind when he talks about the commandments? You love God with your whole being, mind, soul, and strength. And that you love, just as important, that you love your neighbor as yourself. That all of the law and the prophets, Jesus says, hang on those two commands. And what Jesus is saying is that it is way more important to you how you behave and how you look on the outside. And that you follow the prescriptions and the formulas that have been set down before you than it is that your heart is close to God and that you are loving, sacrificially giving your life away for the people around you. I wonder how much this is still true in our world today, where religion is more about the things that we do or don't do than how close our heart is to God and how willing and subconsciously we sacrificially love our neighbor, especially those that are different from us? How well do we love seems to be way more important to Jesus than how clean our hands are. Now maybe for us in our world today, it's not so much about hand washing, but there are a bunch of traditions that we can get all fired up about, aren't there? Ways that we define our closeness to God by what we do or what we don't do. Way more concerned about the way that we look than about the condition of our hearts. Jesus continues on with this example of that doesn't really make sense to us, but talking about that the, Moses' command to honor your father and your mother. But that you are using your legal regulations to take advantage of your parents is the essence of what he's saying there. And he continues, verse 14, he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me all of you and understand this. Now for us, the power of what he's doing here might be missed because um, so much of their life was about making sure that externally they stayed clean so they wouldn't be undefiled. Because if they're undefiled, they were cut off from God and cut off from their community. Hear me and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. 
And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciple asked him about the parable. They don't understand it. I mean, this is too mind-blowing for them to get. So he says to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and then is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and that is what defiles a person. So what is Jesus saying? That's not about what comes, goes into a person, but what comes out of a person that makes them unclean. Because what comes out comes from our heart. And Jesus gives these lists of the things that flow up and out of the heart of people. Evil thoughts. You can get your life completely looking good on the outside, but that doesn't mean that your inner thoughts are any less screwed up. You know, Jeffrey Dahmer looked like a great guy from the outside. Ted Bundy was nice enough that people would invite him to give him a ride. Those are pretty extreme examples. I'm not saying any of you are serial killers with bodies buried in your crawl space. But you get the point. We can clean up the outside, but inside we can still be a total wreck. And we can judge people on the outside by how they look real quickly and have no clue what's actually going on in their hearts. It goes through the things that are in somebody that makes them that, that is the revelation of their heart. Sexual immorality is this broad term. It's porneia. It's where we get our word pornography from. And it's really any kind of sexual intimacy outside of God's bounds. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting. Those are part of the Ten Commandments. He's tying it back to the law. But then listen to this, because it's easy to go through that list and be like, yeah, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. But then he goes into even the deeper places of the heart. Coveting which is literally greediness. It's the hunger for more, that there's never enough. Envy, the literal word there in the Greek means evil eye. It is that seeing and that demanding, that corrupting of what we see with our eyes. Deceit, any form of untruth. The ways that we present or speak or display our lives that aren't in line with the truth of what is. Sensuality, literally it means sinful abandon, living according to or driven by the demands of the flesh. Envy, desiring or demanding what someone else has. Slander, using your words to tear down or tear apart another person. Pride, setting yourself up above or apart from God. I know best. Foolishness. Think about Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The problem is our hearts. And there is no one in this room exempt from that problem, including myself. I know what's in me. And man, if it was broadcast on these screens, you would probably all walk out of here and never come back. I've never killed a person. Never cheated on my wife. 
But there's a whole lot of things, deceit, pride, envy, the demand for more, never having enough. The interesting thing about pride is pride is any time that we feel like, that we think we know better than God. Now, sometimes that shows up as in I'm better than. I deserve the world. I'm the king of the world. Treat me as that prideful uh, ambition that, that I deserve what's best no matter the cost to you. Absolutely, that's a heart of pride. But it is also the same heart of pride that looks at yourself in the mirror and says that, God, you screwed up when you made me. And you don't know what you're talking about. Now we may call that insecurity or shame. But it's the same heart that says that I know that what I see and what I perceive and what I think and what I feel is what is right and what is true. Damn be what God says. And we're all in the same boat. And what is Jesus' point? We need a new heart. We can clean up our outsides. We can get on the shirts and we can uh, get our behavior ordered, but we're still screwed up on the inside. We need new hearts. We need something new, a transformation inside of our souls that changes us from the inside out. It's why the gospel turns on this point. Because up to now, the proclamation of the kingdom was being heard as the imposing of a a stronger force on the forces around us. That God will change the world from the outside in. And from this point on, Jesus says, no, it's going to take me going to the cross. Because the way I'm going to change the world is I'm going to change the world by changing you from the inside out. And I've got to die. And you have to die with me. Because this self that's in you, that's ruling your life right now, that craves and demands and lies and deceives, that tears apart other people, whether it it comes out of your mouth or it's just there in your head, that man, that woman has to die. And I have to die for them so that they can be raised again with me. We need a new heart. And Jesus, as he does so brilliantly, ties his teaching into a physical expression. And we get this story right in the middle of the biggest sandwich in the center of the Gospel of Mark that I actually wish I could skip every time I read it. Because it makes me cringe a little bit. But let's read it, because that's what we do. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's modern-day Lebanon. It would have been considered a, a, a pagan Gentile area. And he entered a house. He didn't want anyone to know that he was there, yet he couldn't be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile. A Syrophoenician by birth, Matthew tells us uh, that she's Canaanite. Canaanites are the, uh, the sworn enemies of God going all the way back to the time of Noah. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, 
Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Did Jesus just call a woman a dog? Like, I don't know how you, like, parse that in the Greek to make it sound good. But I've never met a woman yet that was okay with being called a dog. Now, one way, and I've read a lot of the commentaries and theologians that are trying to wrestle with what this means. I think we get it in the context of the sandwich. But by itself, it's a story that kind of sticks out. Like, what happened to the Jesus that took the leper, touched him, and said, I'm willing? Like, what happened to the Jesus that didn't let a shamed woman stay anonymous, but called her forward into healing and freedom? What happened to the Jesus that was so gentle and compassionate that this woman whose daughter is suffering, who is, falls in front of him begging, and he's like, nah, that doesn't sound like Jesus. But here it is. So what do we do with that? Now, my temptation is to try to, to lessen the uncomfortableness of that passage. We just sit in that a minute. Does that bother you that Jesus would call this woman or refer to this woman as a dog? Why? What do we like about that? And what would our response be if we were that woman? The offense? That's how you're going to treat me? Do you know who I am? Now, I will say, I mean, it, uh, the, the, in the Greek, not that this lessens it that much, but it is the diminutive, if I can pronounce that word right, of uh, the word dog. It's the same as the form for little children. Uh, so in other words, it's more like puppy, um, which I don't know if that's any better or not. <laughs> Let the kids be fed first, for it's not right to take the kids' bread and throw it to their puppies. The other thing that's interesting about it is uh, we're reading the text so we don't actually know the tone of voice that Jesus said this in. Was there a, a sparkle in his eye? Kind of a little tease, like, all right, what are you going to say? What do you think about that? Was it offensive the way I, I first read it? It's like, why would we give the children's bread and give it to the dogs? Side note, and this is not actually out of the text, but it's just a, a, a point that will change your life if you listen to me. <laughs> don't ever have an emotionally charged conversation via text or email there it is alright <laughs> I mean, you just don't know the tone of voice the posture was he leaning in or did he turn away from her did he kind of give her this and say you know nah, go your way or was he like no? what's happening here 
Now, in that context, the fact that he called her a dog to, to the audience that was listening wouldn't have bothered them at all. What would have bothered them is that he had any interaction with her at all. She was a Greek, Syrophoenician, Canaanite woman. Everything about her embodied defiled and unclean. Not just because she didn't wash her hands right, because she was born who she was. There's nothing she could do to make herself clean, to make herself undefiled. In the Jewish perspective, the fact that she was born Gentile and a Canaanite, she was an enemy of God the moment she emerged from the womb. The miracle here is that Jesus responds to her request. And what Jesus is saying is he doesn't actually tell her no. What he says, he sets the order, and this is the order that actually the rest of the New Testament will follow, is to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. He's saying, let the children eat, the children of God, the people of God, the Israelites, and then let everyone else enjoy. Now, this is also an interesting point. Up to now, every time that Jesus spoke in riddles or parables, no one got it, even his own disciples. Tell us, what did that mean? What was that about? Seeds and sowers and rocky ground? And yet this woman, this Greek, what would have been understood, demon-possessed, evil, undefiled, burning-in-hell woman, immediately understands what Jesus is talking about, doesn't she? And then comes right back. Yeah? The dogs are willing to eat the crumbs. I think Jesus is setting the stage for what he's about to do. Because let's go back to the sandwich. Who is about to get the bread? All of the Gentiles. Who's about to get fed from the hand of God? The rest of the world that the Jews would have said that there is no place for. How does God change our wicked hearts? The humbleness to receive what only he can give. What did this woman have that no one else around them did? An open heart to what Jesus was doing and the willingness to lean in. So who gets the bread? Well, she gets the healing. And the 4,000 are about to get the bread. So let's go back to the numbers. Five bread for 12, seven, five bread for 5,000. That leaves 12 basketfuls left over. Seven, seven loaves for 4,000. That leaves seven baskets left over. Well, the five would have been immediately understood to represent what would have been the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law of Moses. The 12 would have represented the 12 tribes of Israel, which were then personified by the 12 disciples. That when God showed up on that side of the lake, that the bread of God, the bread from heaven, was coming to meet the needs of the people of God in a way that the law never sufficiently could. But then Jesus goes to the other side of the lake, and now you have seven loaves of bread. Seven, the number of completion or wholeness. Seven, the days of creation, the original created humanity. So what Jesus was doing at the center of this gospel, at the center of the proclamation of the kingdom of God, the available presence of God, 
that is now leading to the cross, the payment of God for the sin of mankind, is to say that what I am doing here is not just for the Jews. It is for all people. The way that I am going to reclaim the hearts of humanity, of all of my sons and daughters all over this world, every nation, every tribe, every ethnicity, every language, that there are no barriers to the kingdom of God, that we are all equal at the foot of the cross, is that I'm going to lay down my life and sacrifice it all, that my blood would be shed for the forgiveness of sins that would wipe away that dividing wall that separates us from the God who made us. The bread is available for all of us. The question is, do we have humble hearts willing to receive it? In the moment that we begin to think that we deserve it, that we have earned it, that if there's anything we can do to get it, we miss the whole point. The moment we begin to think that our lives are pretty okay, that we've got it together, that we're clean enough, we're good enough, we miss the whole point. We keep coming to the cross because we keep needing the bread of Jesus, the one who sacrificed it all for us. And in fact, this is what we remember every week. On Thursday, there are hopefully a lot of you, and if you, if you want to, it's not too late to um, grab one of, I thought I had one with me. I guess not. Um, one of the packets that talks about Passover. Oh, I do. Sorry. Uh, that will walk you through that, um, that Seder meal, which is the, that last supper that Jesus ate with his disciples. A true, uh, the, the Jewish Passover, that retelling of the story of Exodus, in which Jesus will take the bread, that symbol of God's deliverance, and he'll break it. And he'll distribute it to everyone around the table. And he'll say, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, and every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance carries this idea that bringing into the present the reality of the past, not about just something that happened way back then, but about something that is happening even right now. When Jesus went to the cross, your entire life was in front of him. Everything that you have ever done up to this point, everything that you will ever do from this point on. And he took all of that, that you could be reunited with the creator who made you, who knows you, who sees you, who loves you. Jesus then took that cup of, commu- of uh, the Passover, what would have been understood as the cup of redemption, And he said, this cup, this is my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins, the blood of a brand new covenant. That's not about where you were born. That's not about the rules that you follow or the religion you proclaim. 
but it's about a relationship with the God who made you. Take, drink, and every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So this Palm Sunday, with the echoes of the same question that bookended these stories, who is this Jesus? Are you willing to receive him as Lord and as King? To acknowledge our brokenness, our undeservingness, the mess of our lives, the inner reality that deserves nothing from a God that we made an enemy of, and yet gave everything for you, for me. And so as we continue in worship, I encourage you where do we need to acknowledge our brokenness like the woman where do we need to be humbled to the point that we recognize I can only do all I can do is to receive from you Jesus and so I encourage you to take a moment to just be honest with God search your heart where are the places of rebellion, of apathy, the places you've turned away, of pride? And then as you rise from that place, that place of confession, I invite you to communion. Oneness with God. Oneness with one another. And as you take that wafer, that reminder, that symbol of that bread that Jesus broke, and that little cup, that reminder of the cup that Jesus held. May it be for you as real as it was the moment that he had with his disciples, that original Monday Thursday, Last Supper. And may this Holy Week be for you as if it was you walking with Jesus through those final days there in Jerusalem. You see him on the cross. And can you receive him as a resurrected Lord? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the brilliance of your scripture. That you have made yourself available to all of us. And yet none of us deserve it. You are the only one that has the right to look us in the eye and call us whatever you want to call us. And you'd be right. And yet what you choose to call us is sons and daughters. We don't deserve it, Lord. But may we receive it. And as we place our faith in you and what you did on that cross, and we receive that forgiveness, that there is nothing now that separates us from your love, that you took all the shame, all the guilt that we carry and placed it on your back. Will you fill us in that space as you promised to do with your Holy Spirit? God, will you give us a new heart? 
born again, new and fresh, clean and pure. We want to receive from you this morning. Lord, it's all we have. In your name, amen.